This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale, Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to John McDonald, director of the Gilderland Food Pantry. One in nine people in town is food insecure, he says, and the number has grown during the pandemic and what he calls now the perfect storm. Prices for food, utilities, and gas are all increasing, he says, and we've lost all the COVID monies. He knows what it feels like to need help. McDonald wants Gilderland residents to know they will be welcome at the food pantry. If they're hungry, they're not going to leave that way, he says. One person at a time, we can change the world. I'd like to start, just in case people are not familiar with the food pantry, if you could just give us a description of what it is, where it is, and why it is. Well, that's kind of a loaded question right off the bat. Um, the Gilderland Food Pantry has been in existence since 1979, uh, and the mission of the pantry is to provide food for the food insecure of our community. Uh, the pantry started in the basement of Hamilton Union Church, uh, as I said, back in 1979. In 2018, they moved into a space in Christchurch, Gilderland, which is on 4 Charles Boulevard which is right off of Route 155 by the new stewards. And we are open Monday through Saturday from 9.30 to 11. And again, our goal is to provide food for those that just don't have enough. And I know when I talked to you earlier, you gave me some numbers that I considered startling. And I'm just going to read some of those numbers. Um, the The food pantry, you said, this year... So far, and this was, I talked to you more than a month ago, uh, had added 301 families. And um, the number of meals that were provided had gone from 21,636 last year, and you were projecting 36,274 this year. And I think for a lot of us, that's those are surprising numbers. Uh, we think of Gilderland as a well-off suburban community. And can you just kind of talk a little bit about who you serve? Who who are the customers that use the food pantry? Sure. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, I think um, in these economic times, we found ourselves kind of in the perfect storm, where we're seeing obviously food prices are going up. Uh, Utilities are going up, gas is going up, um, and we've lost all of the uh, the COVID uh, monies. So all the extra money that people got for COVID relief, that's all disappeared. Um, the rent increases are starting to kick back in again. So we're seeing everything going up except for people's paycheck. We're also seeing daycares closing or the cost of daycare going up. So you combine all that with... Um, just the the general sense that we're going in the wrong direction uh, and you're seeing a whole change in some of the demographic so you're seeing seniors 
that are getting uh, really squeezed uh, because, you know, they're living on a fixed income. Uh, we're seeing a lot more extended families where kids are bouncing back and moving back in with parents. These are adult kids moving back with parents. Um, we're seeing grandparents taking care of grandkids, you know, because they can't afford to be in daycare. So you're seeing a whole kind of shift in the demographic. And you are right. Uh, Gilderland is seen as kind of an affluent, you know, upper middle class kind of a community. Uh, but there are multiple what we call pockets of poverty uh, throughout the Gilderland area. These are the little trailer parks that are kind of tucked away. These are the little the old uh, motels. Uh, that used to be in existence, which are now being run kind of like as boarding rooms. So there's a lot of these pockets of poverty, um, which exist in Gilderland. You combine that with the economic uh, pressures that a lot of folks are feeling, and we're seeing the increase in people coming to the food pantry just because the check doesn't go far enough. You know, and not everybody has to come every month. Some people, you know, they can stretch it and they'll come every other month. Uh, but some people are consistently here every month uh, because the need is there. So, and you're right, the numbers are staggering. Uh, yeah. I will, I will, you um, had estimated for me one in nine people in Gilderland is food insecure. That yeah, those, yeah, those are the latest numbers. And, um, you know, you also have to take a look at the fact that um, almost 20% of the school-aged children in Gilderland qualify for free or reduced lunches. So that will also tell you something about, you know, the, the dynamic of the whole family. I mean, if the child is on free or reduced lunches, that means the family may not have enough. Uh, and thus they're turning to the food pantries as well. So, you know, it, again, it's that perfect kind of a storm where, uh, you know, everything's kind of coming together and it's uh, not a really good scenario. No, not at all. And this idea, too, with the school um, for two years, and it's similar to what you just said with the uh, added money the federal government pumped in um, because of the pandemic, the federal government also paid for school lunches for free for everybody for two years. And that now is ended. And it's, it's back to having to apply and show your income level. And it, that must, too, also have a ripple effect. Well, it, it does, because, you know, at, at the pantry, we have a what we call a backpack program where we provide uh, we pack bags of food for kids to get them through the weekend. So when I first started back in 2020, we had about two dozen kids enrolled in this program. Um, last year we did 65 kids and this year we're projected to do about 80 kids. So we are packing bags every Friday for kids and we're delivering them to the schools. Um, and these are kids identified by the school counselors as being food insecure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously if the, if the child is food insecure, probably the entire family is as well. So again, there's that ripple effect that you just talked about. Uh, where it goes down to that child. And, and let's face it, we all have seen the studies and we know that, you know, kids who are not properly fed and nourished don't do well in school and they struggle in other areas of their life as well. So it's real important that we're able to help these kids out, uh, you know, to get them through the weekends. Yeah. And I wonder if those backpack supplies are used by other members of the family as well, because it seems like if you have a family that is food insecure, 
everybody in it, whether they're in school or not, is also suffering from the same thing. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, I would be willing to bet that some of these kids are probably home alone on the weekends, uh, you know, where the parents may be working or they're single, single parent families. So the child is left to his own devices, if you will. So one of the things that we try to do is in these backpacks, make sure that we put in healthy foods, but foods that are easy to prepare. Uh, they're either microwavable or they're already prepared so the child can just open them and eat them. Uh, you know, things like tuna kits and cereals and stuff like that. So we try to keep it as healthy as we can by providing fresh produce as well. Easy to fix in case the child's by himself. But you're you're 100 percent right. If, uh, you know, there may be two kids in the in the family, and one child doesn't go to school. Uh, hopefully you know, they will be able to share the resources. But uh, again, now we're now we're stretching uh, a little bit, trying to make it go a lot farther, which is what their family's doing on the whole anyway. Yeah. So, well, and as we're talking about ripple effects, something that has come up several times in this one conversation thread, you just mentioned some of these kids are probably home alone because their parents are out working, is the shortage of t- child care. You mentioned it earlier with the intergenerational grandparents with households with young children now because the parents are working. And you also mentioned, you know, with the daycare shutting down or cutting back because parents can't go to work if they can't have their children cared for. So, I mean, it's all kind of a big socioeconomic knot, isn't it? It is. I mean, you're, you know, you're seeing some families where, you know, both, uh, you know, mom and dad worked and the kids were in school. Um, but then when the kids get out of school, they have to go to a daycare. Um, but if they can't afford the daycare, sometimes now you're seeing one parent having to stop work because they need to take care of the kids. Mm-hmm. And now you're going for, for two incomes to one income. So again, we're, we're, we're trying to stretch the dollar as far as we can go, but uh, it only stretches so far. So like you say, the whole, you know, kind of socioeconomic piece is just, it's just a mess. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things I'm not sure how to, how to fix it. Um, you know, like you say, when we got all the stimulus money and all those kind of things, uh, that kind of gave everybody, I think, a, a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. And I don't, think they, I don't think they planned well for what was going to happen when it stopped. You know, which, which is something. I mean, let's face it, we all do it when you know, right now we all kind of wish that when we were younger we had saved more money. Um, and I think the same trap caught a lot of families when they got that extra money, um, not realizing, hey, it's going to stop. And when it stops, then we hit the recession at the same time. They never saw that coming. No, none of us did. So they thought it would all go back to normal and it just never did. Yeah. So let's say someone's listening and is thinking, oh, I've I've never gotten food at a food pantry before. What what does someone have to do to apply? Are there is there paperwork? Do you have to have a certain income level? What 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 process would somebody go through to access food at your pantry? Well, Melissa, we definitely have to have paperwork because we couldn't exist without paperwork, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we try to we try to simplify it. Um, you know, the first criteria is they have to live in in my catchment area, which includes Gilderland, parts of Altima, parts of Voorheesville, um, parts of Schenectady, going up Carmen Road. Um, so they have to kind of be in that Gilderland catchment area, uh, mm-hmm. which is actually pretty extensive. Um, 
then they just have to, to stop by the pantry. Uh, the paperwork takes all of about five minutes. Uh, we need all your basic information. Um, but to qualify, um, it's done a couple of different ways. One, it's by income, uh, based on the number of people in your family. And then they set an income range, which is set by the government. It's the, the basic poverty level numbers. But the other way that you can qualify is um, if you get any other government assistance, food stamps, WIC, SNAP, HEAP, uh, Social Security, disability. Uh, if you qualify for any of those other programs, then you qualify for the pantry. So we try to make it as easy as we can. I don't think I've never qualified somebody for the pantry. You know, going to a food pantry is a very, especially the first time, is a very humbling experience. Nobody wants to come to a food pantry. So, um, you know, we, we take people at their word. If they, if they tell us that they need food and they, they can hit one of these categories, we will get them qualified. So the first time they come, we do the paperwork, we get them qualified, and we send them home with food the very first day they come in. So it's actually a pretty simple process. Um, you know, the main thing is we want people not to be intimidated, not to be uh, humiliated uh, about coming to a food pantry. If you need food, you need to come to a pantry. And we make it as um, easy, as painless as we can. Um, you know, we treat people with dignity and respect because we know that they're in a tough spot. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than talking to a parent or talking to a senior who has worked their whole life and now they don't have enough to feed their kids. Okay, that's very humbling and it's very hard for people to do. And we really need to encourage people to, you know, make that step if they really need the assistance because that's why we're here. So tell us about the other people involved in the food pantry. I know you started as director just a month before the pandemic shut down. And yeah. um, the volunteers, I think you told me that you had inherited, is the word you use, 75 yeah. volunteers. But of course, with the shutdown, things changed radically. Just tell us about your volunteers and if someone's listening that might want to become one, how, how they'd go about that. Yeah. And honestly, when I started, um, you know, my biggest fear was trying to remember everybody's name. Um, but then pandemic hit and that solved the problem for me. Uh, <laughs> we went from 75 volunteers down to about 24. Um, and I am absolutely proud of those 24 volunteers because that first year of the pandemic in 2020, we never closed our doors. Okay, we remained open the entire time. We just changed the way we did our, our service as opposed to letting clients come into the pantry. We did curbside. So we never we never closed. The pandemic never slowed us down. Um, and now we've slowly built that uh, volunteer database back up to about 55, maybe 60 volunteers who are regular volunteers. Uh, they'll do any one of a number of tasks for us. Some of them work in the pantry, uh, pulling and packing. Uh, you know, family meals. Some of them uh, are delivery drivers. Some just help on holidays. Some help with food drives. Uh, some help me stuff letters and envelopes when we do mail outs. Um, some help me just with my computer stuff because I'm not a computer guy. So I've got a Facebook person. I've got a web person. So volunteers, you know, come in all different um, varieties, if you will. Uh, and if anybody would like to volunteer, uh, they just need to go to our website which is gilderlandfoodpantry.com and click on the volunteer tab. 
and it'll take them right to an application. They can fill it out, which gives me all their contact information. And then it tells me what their interest is. You know, do they want to work in the pantry? Can they work Monday through Friday? Do they have specific days, specific things they like to do or not like to do? So everything's right on that application. And that application comes to me. And then I reach back out to to the applicant and uh, we see if we can fit them into the program. So tell me about one of the things you mentioned in that list that people can do is deliveries. Do you make a lot of deliveries? And how, how does that work? Yeah, um, Gilderland is part of a coalition of 65 food pantries. Um, the Food Pantry Coalition of the Capital District is kind of like the uh, the hub for the wheel for about 65 pantries. And we're part of that coalition um, that serves the four-county area, which is Albany, Schenectady, Winslow, and Saratoga. So in the Albany area, we are one of probably a handful of pantries that actually do deliveries. So we run deliveries uh, six days a week. Um, again, the deliveries have to be limited into our into our catchment area. Um, and right now, about forty percent of our clients get delivery. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, again, a lot of a lot of those folks are seniors. Uh, they don't drive, can't drive, don't have vehicles, and and some of the others are those single parents at home with kids that can't pack up three or four kids in the car to come to the pantry. So um, that 40% is up uh, probably from about 25% last year. So we're, we have seen an increase in the delivery. Wow, that's, an, that's a really large number. So uh, what about people making contributions? Do you prefer cash contributions or actual food contributions? And how do people go about making them? Is that a go to your website uh, function as well? Yeah, there, there's a couple of different ways. Um, and um, obviously, when we get food donations, that's always a huge benefit. Um, and the, the, the nice thing about food donations is you get a lot of variety um, because people will see something that looks good to them in the store and they'll, they'll, they'll pick it up and donate it um, where we might not normally be able to get that. Um, the downside to food drives and food donations is about 10% of what's donated is waste because it's expired food. Oh, gosh. Um, for example, and this is kind of a funny story. Um, I'm, I'm not sure when you when you know about Faye's Drug Stores. If you remember when Faye Drug Stores used to be around, mm -hmm. uh, which closed up in 1995, uh, we got a donation of lasagna noodles in a donation last week uh, with a Faye's Drug Store sticker on it. <laughs> So that passes at least since 1995. Um, so why would people donate expired food? That's just. Well, here's what happens on food drives. People clean out their pantry in the kitchen. I see. They'll donate that can of beans that they were going to use for a recipe and then decided not to. So it sits in the cupboard. Um, so we have to be really careful because we don't give out expired food. Um, you know, so everything that comes in through donation, we have to weigh it. We have to date check it and then we stock it. So that's just the nature of food drives, but uh, food drives are invaluable. Um, each year we bring in about 40,000 pounds of food comes in just through the front door through food drives and individual donations. So that's, that's a lot of food. Now the, uh, so food drives are great. Food donations are great. Now cash is always better. Okay. And I'll explain to you why. Um, 
When I purchase food, my main supplier is the regional food bank. At the regional food bank, as a member pantry, I can get certain products at discounted prices. So if you were to go to the store with a dollar, you might be able to buy one box of pasta. With that same dollar, if I go to the food bank, I can get five boxes of pasta because I can get it at a discounted price. So I can make your dollar go a lot farther by shopping through my sources. I, I buy bulk, I buy in quantity. So, you know, the monetary donations help me purchase exactly what I need, uh, when I need it, and I can usually get more of it than if you were to go shopping at the grocery store. So that's the benefit of the cash donations. Again, food donations and food drives are fabulous. We get a lot of variety of things. Um, and they're wonderful and they're super helpful. So either way works, uh, just depends on what people's preference is. Now, if you want to do a cash donation, you can right, simply go online to our website. There's a tab that says donate. You click there, it takes you right to my uh, giving site. You put in the amount where you want the money to go, put in your information and it's done. So that, that part of it becomes very simple if they want to do an online donation. But we also take we also take checks if people want to mail in a check, um, and people will come by and they'll just drop off cash donations at the pantry as well. So that's great. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> but anyway, you mentioned you mentioned in in passing here, and I'd like to hear a little more about the regional food bank. Just explain okay. how that works. Okay, um, we are partners with the regional food bank, um, which is basically. Um, the largest grocery store you've probably ever seen. So what happens is every year we get grant money from the food bank, which is all based on how many people we serve and that kind of stuff. So they give us money that goes onto an account at the food bank and we use that money to purchase items that they have on their site. And those items range from uh, items donated by large stores. Uh, it includes salvage items that are donated. It includes USDA product which is usually your meats and your dairy, which come from uh, federal sources. Uh, and then there's also co-op um, organizations that donate to the food bank. So we can buy off of that list as well. Um, and again, everything that we buy off the food bank, if we can't get it at minimal charge, it's less than you would pay at a grocery store. And the way the food bank works, as long as I have money in my account, I can just keep spending. I can go once a week. I can go twice a week, you know, whatever I need, uh, I can, if they have it on their list, I can go and I can buy it. And I think you told me earlier, you operate your pantry, and I forget the phrase you used, client choice. Was that it? Client, so client the, choice, exactly. So yeah, yeah. every pantry operates independently. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, all have, they can all establish their own guidelines. So some, some pantries will prepack, so everybody gets the same thing. Um, but we prefer to use client choice, which means the client, is able to choose the product that he would like, he or she would like, because I want to make sure that what they get, they're going to eat. I don't want to prepack something then have you not eat it and then you throw it away. So what we do is when the client places an order, uh, we go through the whole food list with them. We let them know exactly what we have. And we maintain all your basic staple items, your grains, your canned fruits and vegetables and that kind of stuff. But we give them a choice. We don't just say, do you want canned vegetables we say what kind of canned vegetable so if they want corn and peas that's what we give them um, then we also offer them a variety of dairy products so they get, they get to choose if they want it or don't want it we give them a, a meat options 
So we don't just say, okay, listen, they're getting hamburger. We have four or five different choices. They can make their own choice there. So we try to let them choose as many uh, food items as they would like that they will eat. So, uh, and, and that leads me to how does the, how does the client order food? Um, they can order it a couple different ways. They can, they can call the pantry. We'll take their order over the phone. We'll pack it and have it ready for their pickup or delivery. Um, what's going to be a very popular option is they can go online. So if they go to the website, click order food, it gives them the food order form right on the website. They click the items they want. They tell me when they want to come pick it up and it comes right to the pantry. That way we can have it packed and ready for them. So everything that we do is about client choice so that they will get the things that they want and the things that they're going to eat so it doesn't go to waste. So are you able to accommodate special needs? Like if someone's on a gluten-free diet or someone is um, eating kosher food, are you able to accommodate things like that? Or is that too specialized? Um, No, most of the time, um, you know, our biggest um, ask is low salt, low sugar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, pretty much all the the canned fruits that we buy are uh, low sugar Mm -hmm. and most and vegetables are low salt, mm-hmm. or we try to get frozen. Um, we also get uh, a regular delivery of fresh produce from a couple of local sources, so we try to provide fresh produce as well. Um, we have a, a, a whole shelf dedicated to our gluten-free families, um, and a lot of that is donated from a local vendor. Um, and we also try to carry um, non-pork products, because there are some families that don't eat pork uh, for religious reasons. So we also stock, try to stock um, halal meats, um, which meet their uh, religious belief needs as well. So we try to, we try to catch them all if we can. Uh, we always try to keep some non-dairy stuff around for people that can't have dairy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the different kinds of milk, like almond milk, uh, coconut milk, those kind of things. So we try to meet them if we can. And part of our intake process when we register a client is we ask them if they have any special needs or if they have any food allergies. So we try to meet those needs as well. That's just amazing. Before we totally run out of time, I want to hear a little about you. I remember that you had a career with Veterans Affairs, and I see behind you on the wall you have one, two, three, four, five beautifully framed flags just tell us what they are and kind of walk us through your life if you would Uh, and actually that's probably only half of what's in my room um uh, i was born and raised in in albany uh lived in gilderland since i was 10 um left gilderland for a short time when i went in the military Uh, i served for three years in the uh, united states army stationed in germany um when I got out of the military, I went to work for the Veterans Administration, uh, which is where my father had worked uh, and my brother had worked. Um, I worked there for 32 years, uh, retiring in 2013. Uh, I am proud to say that my son now works there. Um, so, uh, yeah, all the flags behind me, uh, I'm kind of a, uh, a military history guy. So all the flags behind me in the pictures all represent members of my family who served in the military. Um, the flags that you see behind me in the, in the triangle frames are family members who have served, but have passed. Um, I've also got two sons, uh, who went in the military, uh, both combat veterans. And, uh, I'm very proud of our uh, family's military heritage. So, uh, I display it in my office. 
Oh, that's wonderful. I see in those beautifully framed triangular flags, you have pictures. I assume that's of the relative who served. Oh, wow. That's really nice. Well, so tell us about your own career. Um, You were a crisis trainer. Is that right? What what Um, exactly did you do? Yeah, when I worked for the Veterans Administration, I worked in the police department. Uh, The VA has its own police force nationwide, um, so I was part of the Veterans Affairs Police. Uh, Started out as a patrol officer. Uh, When I retired, I was the chief of police at the Albany VA, as well as the regional police chief for all of upstate New York, which is uh, five VAs from here to Buffalo. Uh, But for about the last 20 years of that, I uh, helped run a crisis team. So we responded to all the crisis calls and we did crisis intervention training, hostage negotiation training uh, and those kind of things. And, uh, you know, again, the goal being to resolve things peacefully before uh, you know anything gets out of hand. But uh, crisis intervention training was kind of what we did. And we developed a whole program for the VA um, that, uh, you know, still still runs today. That sounds like a really tough job. You you are put right in the middle of it. A tense situation. Absolutely. You know, and it was always, you know, it's a balancing act because we were law enforcement, but we're working in a a medical center setting. Mm -hmm. So the goal is not to arrest somebody. The goal is to get them treatment that they need, but to to walk that line so that at the same time, nobody gets hurt in the process. Um, You know, the the uh, the entertaining part for me is even as the chief, I still ran every call. You know, if there was a call, I'm going. And for the last five years, my office was actually located in the emergency room, which is where most of the activity happened. So I was usually the first one there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, at times harrowing, um, but always rewarding. Um, wow. Because you know, the emergency room, I guess we've all been in them, <laughs> is when people are right on the edge of what life is, you know, they're yes. facing a horrible situation. And I can imagine things could get out of hand easily if, if they, they certainly did. Um, and like I said, I just had to step out my office door to get in the middle of it. So uh, it became quite entertaining, actually. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you build some great relationships, not only with the folks that you're working with, and you build this great trust, um, because you're, you're each responsible for certain roles during a crisis intervention. And if everybody doesn't pull up their, their end of the role, you know, you could have a problem. So you, you develop great trust, you know, with your coworkers, but you also develop this really great relationship with the veterans that you're trying to help. Um, because once they realize that you're trying to help them, you know, and you've established a trust with them and a rapport with them, it's amazing um, how much they will work with you and, and help you to help them. So uh, it was a very rewarding thing, um, you know, and, uh, you know, doing it for 32 years and, uh, you know, I came out of it in one piece. So uh, we must have done something right. But yet you didn't sit back and relax in your retirement. What made you decide to jump into directing the food pantry? Um my wife and I had been running the food pantry at our church up in Colony for about 14 years now. Um, and, you know, honestly, most of my volunteer and community service work was in Colony because that's where my church was. Um, and when I had the chance to come back to Gilderland, um, I jumped on it, um, you know, because I love working in my own community. This is where I grew up. The, the schools are the, these schools are the schools I went to when I was a kid, um, you know, and, uh, 
it was just a pleasure being able to get back into the community and work with some folks that I went to school with, some folks I grew up with. Um, so I've got that experience working in the pantries from working, uh, you know, up at the church pantry for all those years. Um, and, uh, you know, like, again, being able to serve in your own community is such a blessing. Um, and it's a great community to, to, to serve in uh, from, you know, Peter Barber and the town people all the way down to the to people that run the mom and pop stores and all that kind of stuff. Just a great community. And uh, it's just a blast working in it. <laughs> well, do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, you know, the the, the bottom line for me is. We have folks in our community who are struggling uh, and they may not struggle forever. It, it may just be a temporary struggle, um, but we need to encourage folks that need help, whether it's food assistance, whether it's help with their utility bills, whatever it is. We need to encourage people to, to not be afraid, not be uh, intimidated by the process um, to seek help. If you need food, all you have to do is call me and you'll get food. Um, that's not a question. Um, if you need other assistance, we can get you to other people that could help you with things. So we just need to really encourage people to, you know, know that this is not going to last forever. You know, things are going to get better at some point. Um, and we want you to come to us and let's, let's build a relationship. Let's build a friendship and let us help you help yourself. Because I know that eventually you're going to be get, get back on your feet and you're going to end up being the one that volunteers you're going to be the one that donates to 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 the food pantry or to another organization um, because we know that's where the heart of people is. So uh, I just want to encourage people to uh, be optimistic. You know, things will get better. But if you need us, we're here. I love your life's philosophy. Thank you so much. That's my pleasure. You know, I, I am the eternal optimist. Um, and, uh, you know, I love working with people. And, you know, it, it's this is one of the best jobs I've ever had. You know, somebody once said that uh, the secret to a happy life is to find something that you love doing and call it work. Uh, and that's, that's what I'm doing right now because every day is a, is a great day at the office. You are really inspirational. <laughs> that's, well, I, I, you know, I, I hope so because, you know, again, you know, I, I see people coming to the door um, that are our age um, and they're in tears because they're having to come to a food pantry and it breaks my heart. You know, the, I talked to a lady last week. She's uh, in her early 70s, um, been retired about five years. She said, you know, I worked my entire life and now I don't have enough and I don't know what to do. You know, and you, you, you feel for people like that because they've worked hard and now they're in this position, you know, of no fault of their own. Um and, and they feel bad about coming to me, you know, and it's like, you know, I don't want people to feel that way. Um, you know, when I started my career at the VA, I was a full-time government employee, married two kids, and I qualified for WIC. I qualified for reduced lunches at school, and I missed qualifying for food stamps by $25 a week. And that's as a full-time government employee. So the first time I had to walk into WIC, it was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, you feel, um, you know, humbled is probably not even the word for it. Um, you know, so I know how people feel when they're when they're having to come because they're put in a situation that they can't control. Uh, and it sucks, honestly. Um, so 
you know, I just want people to know that they can come and they can see us and they'll be greeted with a smile, uh, you know, a friendly face. And if they're hungry, they're not going to leave that way, you know. So, you know, one person at a time, we can change the world.